In episode number six of My Awakening Podcast, you will be hearing my guests Chris and Adrena share their experiences as parents helping to prepare all three of their kids for the world that they face as adults. As they share their heart, I hope you will take note of the particular challenges of raising black kids in our community versus what we white parents face. Please listen as well for Adrena's sharing of the difference between Black's more frequent conversations about racial issues compared with the mostly avoided same conversations with white folks. Lots of helpful, deeper understanding of racial issues from Chris and Adrena's perspective awaits you in listening to this episode. I am sure it will further inform you as your own awakening journey continues. Let's take a listen. Okay, I'm really pleased to introduce today my friends Adrena and Chris, and they've both agreed to come on as a couple here for uh, our podcast, and I'm so pleased that they're open to uh, sharing with us here today, sharing with me and our, our podcast listeners, and uh, so thank you both for being with us, and I'd like you to just introduce yourselves a little bit and tell our audience a little about yourself so we get to know who Chris and Adrena are. All right, I'll go first. Uh, my name's Adrena. I was born in uh, California, so I grew up in California in the Bay Area. Um, I grew up, uh, I was born in San Francisco, but grew up uh, after five years old in uh, Walnut Creek, California, which is a very, a very white place. Um, and after college or during college I met Chris here and he brought me to the Northwest after we got married and so I've been here for 27 years. So how how old were you Adrena when you um, when you left California? I was 22. Okay mm -hmm. and did you do school down there or you did school up here? I did school down there so okay. I went to University of California in Berkeley and okay. so I was there and then met Chris during that time. My sister was living here in Seattle area and so I came to visit one spring break and we met and and that was all she wrote. <laughs> 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 so how many siblings do you have? I have two older, I have an older brother and an older sister. Okay. Mm -hmm. And did you grow up with uh, mom and dad present? And Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris, you want to tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Um, I was born in Lakewood, Washington. Uh, grew up, went to school in Lakewood, Washington. And so by... Proximity to Fort Lewis and McCord. I grew up in a pretty diverse area. Um, I didn't grow up in an affluent area. I grew up a block off of South Tacoma Way near the big pink Starlight Theater. Oh, my, yeah. My street, Warner Street, ran right into it. Yep. And so um, that was my neighborhood. Um, so I felt, well, I should say also that I was a product of a biracial marriage. So my dad is black and my mom is from Tokyo, Japan. And uh, they met when my dad was in the Air Force and okay. was over in Japan. 
Um, so, uh, along the lines of this podcast, I face my own discrimination. My children call me yellow. You're not black, Dad. You're yellow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. That's so, good. So, so maybe this podcast will be kind of cathartic for me. So, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Colorism, right in our own household. Yes. It's poor, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> so. Um, Tell us uh, about your your own family that you have now and uh, what's happening in that arena. They're all getting older. We have three children, a 15-year-old son, and then uh, two daughters, uh, 20 and 21. So our son Isaac is, is the only one at home at the moment, but uh, one of our daughters may be moving back pretty soon here. COVID, due to COVID complications. <laughs> So they've 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 both been in school. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, one of the things I was thinking about today. So we've known each other since Isaac was a little guy. So about fifteen years, mm-hmm. roughly. And we met at church, and um, and we all still go to that same church. And uh, so. Uh, and you folks were really some of the first people that we interacted with because we joined the small group that you were leading at your home and right. hosting at your home. So you were some of the first people that we got to know really at the church. And um, I find it interesting. I was just thinking about this today. So all of that time, we never had conversations about racial issues. Um, why do you suppose that is? Yeah. Fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. I, um, for myself, I think I grew up in a time of, well, I was born in 1965, and that was kind of during the civil rights era movement, And uh, but I was pretty much a, a child, and so um, I didn't understand what was going on. And being in the Northwest as well, um, I felt like I was kind of insulated, and kind of, I think, in the last podcast you guys were talking about living in a, a bubble and so I think I was in somewhat of an insulated bubble in terms of that um, so I think out of the civil rights movement there was a opportunity for um, equal opportunity affirmative action and almost a sense that okay we've arrived we have opportunities we can be successful um, and it was almost a kind of a fallacy because as you can see where we are in America today, um, there was uh, that sense of, okay, we can do it if we have the opportunity to do it. And so now we can um, get an education, we can work, and we can do just as well as anybody else. And uh, along with that, because now we're kind of an enlightened society after civil rights, so it uh, became taboo to talk about those things, to talk about race or even to admit that any, you had a bias or, or that kind of thing. So um, you'd go to work, didn't rock the boat, make anyone uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, and you would see and you would know that there was bias, there was prejudice, and it would, not in the extent that you would see in other parts of the country, but it was, it was there, but it was something that you could navigate. navigate. So. Did you did you have a in your particular family with a black father and an Asian mother? Did you have uh, 
purposeful conversations there in your family about these kind of things or no? No, nothing. So I should mention as well, when I was in first grade, uh, my dad left. So it was just my mom and my two sisters and me. So, okay. And so in terms of race, which my mom experienced her own uh, racism and things like that and coming to America and going to Jim Crow South and of course you experience all the prejudices not only against black but against also Japanese and interracial marriages so um, there was that but there was never any discussion in terms of, of that so it was something that like I said I was kind of insulated from and then um, kind of like yourself as things started to transpire, transpire more and more, and you would see more and more with the advent of uh, body cams and uh, camcorder, or not camcorders, but camera phones, cell phones. Uh, you begin to see a lot of things that were going on in the world, and it was just an awakening as well in a lot of ways for me, although, like I said, you would see instances of things, but nothing that uh, was earth-shattering lives being taken, you know, and um, just outright murders. And, mm-hmm. and that kind of shook me to my core in terms of I'd just be watching the news and, you know, they would just sh- I'd be in tears about it because it's like, wow, you know, this is something that isn't right. This is something that, but what do you do? What do you do about it? Yeah. Adrena, how about your experiences with, uh, you're inside your family and then coming out of that um, was there purposeful conversations of those na- of that nature about racial issues and such um, we talked more about it um, probably because my dad was was really into black history really into black history I mean as a kid you know it would just be like oh now he's going to talk about Imhotep for two hours, which I can't even remember who he is, but that's who he talked about. <laughs> I better look it up. <laughs> he would not be proud. <laughs> I just remember the name. But uh, he was very into black history. And um, like I said before, my family moved from a diverse neighborhood in San Francisco to suburban white Walnut Creek when I was five. So I grew up being the only black child in class or one of a few. Um, So in a lot of ways, you know, as a kid, things happen to you and you don't think anything of it. But then my hearing my parents talk about it or respond to it or go talk to the teacher about it or, you know, and I'm just as a kid, I'm just like, what are you talking about? Or I'm embarrassed. But um, but they knew what was going on. And now that I'm a parent, I, I know what that, I know what that is, you know, they, Mm -hmm. well, you know, your kids will tell you something that happened. You're just like, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) Um, so, so they, they, they were, you know, the parents that said, you know, you're going to be the one that needs to work harder. And, um, that was just, you know, kind of the, the speech we got. What is the heritage of your your mom and dad? My parents are both black. Are are they both from the U.S.? Yes. So they both. Um, so my my mom's parents moved their young family from Louisiana to California during the Great Migration mm-hmm. um, 
to kind of escape Jim Crow and have better financial opportunity. And also um, my mom's cousin, because my grandmother and her two sisters and their families, they all came together to San Francisco. And so my mom's cousin had polio. And so for medical treat for better medical treatment, that was another reason why they moved from Louisiana to California. So they all moved in. My mom was a child. So the forties, <clears throat> my dad's family moved. I'm not sure of the time frame of his move, but his family came from Texas. He was born in Arizona, but then they were in Texas and then they moved from Texas to California. Do you suspicion that uh, even though your parents were both black, that if you grew up in a mostly white area, that that informed your cultural understandings more than necessarily the black experience might? It definitely, I don't know if this is answering your question, but it definitely made me want to be intentional about where we lived and where our kids went to school because I did not want them to be the only one in their classroom. Okay. So, um, so I appreciate the Tacoma area and that it's diverse. Um, we don't have to be, you know, my kids don't have to be the only black kid walking down the street. You know, I mean, it's not, um, it's diverse enough where right. they're not the only ones in, in the class. And so that was definitely something that I, that I wanted for them in choosing where they were going to go to school and choosing the neighborhood that we lived in. Um, we weren't going to be living in Bonnie Lake. Right. Just saying. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we knew we were living in Seattle when the kids were, when the girls were babies before Isaac was born. And, you know, Chris's family was down here and we, we needed a bigger house. We could not afford another house in Seattle. So we knew we were going to come to Pierce County. Okay. We looked at a few places in Puyallup and out there. I don't, I didn't, I didn't know the area very well back then. I just know some of the places were kind of out there, out there. Um, and this was before the girls were even in school, but, um, but I knew what I didn't want for our kids as far as a school experience and a neighborhood experience. So, so that informed how I wanted our kids experience to be. So is that when you chose then UP? To live in University Place, we ended up choosing a home in UP. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the most diverse place, you know, in Pierce County, but, um, but it it worked. It worked well when, sufficiently so where the kids were not likely to be the only black person in the building. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They and might my, not. They might not have a lot of mix in each class, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're not going to be the only black kid in the building. Yeah, I mean, and at, at the, at right now, you know, university place is about fifty percent white and fifty percent other, which is okay. You know, more diverse than it was twenty years ago, certainly. Yeah. But in my graduating class of four hundred students, there were three black students. Hmm. So I didn't want that. That was in in California. In the yes, that was okay. where I grew up. And the, how did the diversity thing look in your graduating class here in uh, which which yeah. high school? Uh, did you Clover graduate? Park High School. Okay. Yeah, like with the proximity to um, uh, Fort Lewis and McCord, um, it, there was quite a bit of diversity um, in my school. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sound like. Uh, the uh there was examples that screamed that 
the screamed out at either of you of of uh, situations that happened to your children in school or the community that uh, really were problematic per se. You know, you, when things happen, you just you wonder, was it because they're black or? You know, sometimes you just wonder, you know, another one that came to mind is, you know, she, uh, this Carissa again, she did Running Start. And so she took some classes at the high school and then she left during the day, you know, halfway through the day to get to a 12 o'clock class for this one example. And so, um, so she's in, she's getting ready to get to her car and the assistant principal's in the parking lot saying, you know, where are you going? I'm like, well, I have a 12 o'clock class at TCC. And he's just like, like not believing her. So he's got this device where he can look up her schedule on the, on his device, iPad or whatever it is, just to prove that she does have a class at noon and, you know, and she's sitting there waiting and he's like, well, I'm not trying to make you late or anything or hold you up. And in her head, she's thinking, well, you are, <laughs> you know, yeah. and so it's just like she was she was in Running Start for two years and this was her second year in Running Start. And so if you already know somebody's a Running Start student, then why are you holding them up in the parking lot when they're trying to get to class? You know, so yeah. it's like, I don't know. Did it happen because she was black? Would he have stopped anybody he saw in the parking lot? We really don't know. But um, it was just one of those annoying stories to hear. Is there more concern for your son than there is for your daughters, as an example? Uh, Is that something you could talk about and share a little bit about? I definitely have more concern for for Isaac. Um, And I don't and I feel like in the last couple of years, it's 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 increasing. And maybe that's just because, you know, he's just learning to drive now. And now I'm thinking do I even want him to drive alone? You know, I was just yeah. like, is that, is that necessary? Um, I mean, you know, he, when he leaves the house, even now, or if, if he goes to a friend's house and, um, and maybe their family is white and maybe they don't, they're not going to give him the warnings that we would give him, or maybe they would let them walk to Seven Eleven at nine o'clock at night or, 10 o'clock at night and we wouldn't let him walk to 7-Eleven at 9 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night. I mean, it's just just little little things when you think, okay, you have a 15-year-old, they're old enough to walk to 7-Eleven. They're old enough to go ride a bike, you know, ride ride the bike around their neighborhood with their friends. But um, you just worry about who they're going to run, who they're going to run into that that doesn't see them the way you see them. They just see them as a black man but he's my goofy kid. Yeah. You know. Why would you specifically say you are more concerned about your son than maybe you were about either of your two daughters? Um I just think that black boys in particular don't fare as well. I mean, even with even with him going into high school, it's like, you know, the girls the girls made it. It was fine. We have our stories. It was it was up and down. But when I think about my son going there, I just have a different feeling about it. Um, even when I hear about, you know, some of the stories that the girls used to tell about 
how staff members would talk to some of the boys if they're, you know, walking too slow to class or, you know what I mean? I just feel like boys have a harder time um, in school and in society. Black boys have a harder time in school and in society. Um, Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think there's definitely, um, if, like you mentioned earlier, um, I don't know if we were on air or not, um, in terms of um, there's kind of an in, intimidation factor. If, like you mentioned earlier, like if the majority of teachers are white, and if you have a black student, like you mentioned, that those teachers may live in a white community. They only venture um, or the only contact with whether it's a black neighborhood or not. They only they only contact with black people or when they come to teach at school. So there's a preconceived notion of what black children are like, black boys are like, uh, a bias. And um, I think there's an intimidation factor that they don't know. They're afraid of their the fear of the unknown. So they may approach them in a more assertive manner, uh, um, discipline for may, discipline between white and black kids may not be equitable because of that as well because of that bias so um and that just carries on throughout you know not just school not as children but as when they become adults as well of course uh, how far have you gone with the conversations in your own home with regarding these things or yeah we've um been very um forthright with him about the realities of the situation so talking about what to do um, in situations where you are with a group of white friends and knowing when to excuse yourself, like, okay, this is something that if the authorities get called, I'm going to be left holding the bag here, you know, and everyone else is going to go home or get a slap on the wrist and, you know, this could be really bad jail or, you know, life and death situations. So we've had those, we've gone to movies like The Hate You Give and it's very hard to have to have those conversations because you want your child to be able to be a child yeah. and you're stealing that innocence. So um, you want your child to just be a normal child and not have to face those things but they do you have to let them know the reality because if you're remiss in your duties and that you know then you're you're responsible for you know um how they handle themselves out in society so um you know so we take opportunities to talk about it if we watch a movie and things and just like i'm doing now kind of blubbering talk about it and i cry in front of him is just a hard thing and uh just let him know you know it's because i love you and i don't want anything to happen to you so that's why we have to talk about these things you know so i think it started he was probably nine. I think it was he was nine the first time we had that conversation. And and like Chris was saying, it's like it's like you're having to to steal innocence to to talk about these kinds of things. And at the same time, you know, I'm a teacher and so, you know, you know, there's always these discussions about, you know, what you talk about in school and when you teach about Martin Luther King, how much do you say? And when you teach about Harriet Tubman, how much do you say? And people will always say, well, you know, they're young, so you don't need to, 
you know, you don't need to, you know, say this part, yada, yada. And I'm thinking, well, I had to tell my child that. So it's like the white kids get to keep their innocence, but our kids can't. They have to know. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it kind of bothers me. And, and I'm, I'm actually over that right now because um, I'm working with a group of teachers who are advocating for, you know, if you're going to teach about social justice, it needs to start early. And there's a way to do it in an age appropriate way. Um, you know, we're not trying to scare little kids, but you do need to start with the truth. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but that always just really bothered me. It's just like, well, you know, they just can't hear about that. <laughs> I heard this statistic on this podcast um, a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember something that you were listening to, Chris. And they, it said 75% of white people today, 75%, know zero people of color. They don't know, not just they don't know any black people. They don't know any people of color. That's 75% of white people. So um, that was actually shocking. I mean, I mean, I knew what, that... It really was to you? Yeah, it, it was shocking to me um, that they didn't even know anybody. 75%. So I just feel like that what you're doing is powerful because um, because you can reach people who, you know, who would never be talking to us possibly you know people people we don't know people who aren't in our circles mm -hmm. uh, so i want to encourage the idea that we all be more purposeful about our friendships not just for the sake of friendships but for the sake of community and for the sake of the world Definitely. honestly yeah. I, I thought of something because i was having a conversation with um with someone today who um who, you know, we don't talk a lot, but, but I know this person and the purpose of the conversation was just, you know, she was wanting to connect and just kind of pick my brain kind of like you are now, just kind of just to talk about some of these race things and what she said to me, and this kind of speaks to the fact that it's important for us to, to be together and to be intentional about the conversation, even though, like you said, you know, the odds are I have plenty of white friends. So the thing is what, the reason why I needed to have this conversation with her today is because she said something that was helpful for me. And that was, you know, she was, she basically, she said, I just didn't know that these things were happening in the world. You know, I, you know, I grew up, you know, I know my family was racist growing up, she says, you know, but, and, but, you know, we live in this kind of diverse area and I just really didn't know that these things were happening even here. And to me, to hear her say that was helpful because the alternative is, you know, and you don't care. Mm -hmm. So when I heard her say it, 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 it gave me, I don't know, it, for, it just made me feel better because having her say, I just honestly didn't know, um, it didn't hurt as much. Yeah. Like having, you know, this whole, you know, last month or so, not that, you know, the death is still there, but to, to have her say that to me was helpful because it feels better than 
well, I knew it was happening and I just don't care. Because when you hear some people talk and when you hear what people put out there, it seems like they just don't care. Unfortunately, it took deaths and uh, murders of black men at the hands of police for the public to be outraged enough. And, you know, Adrena um, in a, another uh, broadcast was talking about how racism has always been fueled by greed and money. Um, and, and, you know, it's just perpetuated in society by then fallacies and lies to dehumanize people so that we can continue uh, uh, mistreating and oppressing people, brutalizing people with little consequence and to continue to make money off of um, things like uh, privatized prisons and things like that. But anyway, um, my point being that um, what changed between when uh, Kaepernick took a, took a knee during the uh, national anthem and now that the NFL is saying, oh, hey, we were wrong, we should have you know, sided with you. And I think it's public opinion and industries, um, corporations are realizing that this can affect the bottom line, you know, and we don't want to be on the wrong side of this because this, we see the outrage right now. We want to be on the right side of this because um, we want to make money, <laughs> you know. Yeah. We don't want people boycotting. We don't want to, you know, whatever. And uh, we want to keep a good public image. So you see Aunt Jemima is being rebranded, Uncle Ben's um, cream of wheat, you know, with the yeah. black man on the cover. Uh, and the removal and he, of the Confederate flag from the NASCAR. Yeah, yeah. Deals. So, I mean, it's amazing. A uh, lot of stuff is stirring right now. So, yeah, and all these images of kind of subjugated people that they were using to make money, now they're like, this may not be good for the bottom line because people, the tides are turning now. And so now they're willing to start um, look at, looking at some of these kind of things. So I think I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And I think as long as we keep the tide rolling, <laughs> I think um, some of these things will help with the systemic racism. Yeah, I think the, the general consensus is, you know, everybody has made a statement and the, the statement is nice, but so now there should be some action that backs that up, you know, like concrete steps. Um, and so with me being a teacher, um, I would like for there to be no more generations of white kids that would need to say, well, I just didn't know. And, and so schools have... You're talking about the history pieces? Yes. Okay. So schools have an opportunity to teach um, everything, yeah. you know. They, Historical and current affairs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, For sure. So, um, so as far as, you know, working within our circles of influence and in our world, I'm a teacher. And so that's what I'm asking for um, in my school district is um, let's look at our curriculum and where do we need to be offering diverse perspectives in U.S. history when we teach it and in literature and, um, you know, in our world history books, the, the history of each continent is taught from the time that the Europeans got there. 
So like everything that happened before the Europeans got to Asia, it was like they didn't exist. The Asians did not exist until the white people got there. Africa did not exist until the white people got there. And so that was Isaac's world history book. And so, uh, and, and when you, when you teach about slavery, you know, there doesn't need to be a picture of a black person there. Like slavery didn't start with black people. Slavery has been going on for thousands of years. Um, so let's, let's, let's really teach, um, the real history. Um, let's teach about what I, you know, Chris was talking about a minute ago, that the economic advantages for slavery here and the economic advantages for, um, criminalizing and dehumanizing black people for police brutality and for mass incarceration. It all boils down to money. Um, so let's teach. Um, and we have an opportunity. We get kids for 13 years, kindergarten through 12th grade, and we have an opportunity to teach a generation of kids, white and all colors, um, history, uh, literature, music from a wealth of different perspectives, not just a white perspective. And then we don't have to have any more grown folks walking around talking about, well, I just didn't know. This whole history piece that you mentioned, I really feel that is honestly a piece that has to happen. Because unless we're building up from the ground up with the upcoming generations, we can do our work here with my age and your age and all that. But if we're not investing in the, a broader understanding of our kids starting K through 12, then we really miss the boat. We got to fix that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, schools are part of the institutional stuff. That's pretty stuck. I'm afraid. Yeah. They, they can't just read from white authors. They can't just hear about white scientists. Yeah. They grow up thinking black people don't write books. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't remember who it was that was telling me that. I can't remember who I was talking to, but basically, you know, a white kid turned around and 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 told her, "Well, there weren't any black people that invented anything," <laughs> and he was serious. <laughs> like, I can't remember who it was. Anyway, that's what they think. There's yeah. they, there's people who think that. Yes. So. And the same goes with education. You guys were talking about education and you know, getting teachers and retaining the teachers once you get them, they're teachers of color in, into the schools. So um, I think there's a lack of that role model, lack of that uh, insight that would come with teachers of color that aren't, it, it's not there now. And so there has to be some change there as well. Do you believe that this has shifted sufficiently to where we can now feel more comfortable being uncomfortable and just having these conversations in church, at work, maybe at the grocery store? I don't know, just kind of wherever. Do you think they could happen spontaneously or do you believe it's still going to require a purposeful, intentional deal like we've created having this conversation here tonight? Well, I think that black people always talk about race with each other. Black people will talk about race with white people who are willing to talk about race. But most of the time, white people aren't willing to talk about race. So I feel like the ball is almost in 
a white person's court, are you still open to talking about race now? <laughs> um, that's good. So that's that's kind of that's, that's kind of uh, honestly that's that's really good. I I love to hear that. It wouldn't be reasonable to think that a black person is going to start that conversation with a, a group of white friends. It would be it would need to be started by the white friends, maybe asking a question or beginning the conversation in some way. Is that yeah? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. That 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 would be true because it's just like we're always gonna hold back, and then there's the invitation, and then there's it's permission. Like, okay, we can go there. Yes. We can go deeper now. <laughs> and I think in a sense, you know. You know, everybody feels free on Facebook. It's kind of a safe, you know, way to express yourself, I think. But I think even then, you know, Adrena talks about Facebook being her family scrapbook. You know, oh, look, my son got on the honor roll or my daughter got accepted into college or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think now we're more willing to talk about this taboo topics, right? And to say, hey, this is what I feel personally what's going on. Um, in our experience with racism and to be more vulnerable about that and then to invite that conversation and you get some um, people that are wanting to engage the conversation and um, so I think you're able to have a, a mature, respectful um, mutual, mutually respectful conversation and I think that's how the conversation you had today with the young lady came up is, you know, we did put ourselves out there and say, this is our experience. And they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And then, hey, let's talk some more. Yeah. So. Would either of you say that this paradigm that we're talking about, was that happening for you before the last few weeks? Were there opportunities and times when it came up where... Uh, a white friend or whatever did begin a conversation or asked a question, or is that a fairly new um, paradigm here that we're that has shifted now? Um, Have you experienced those kind of conversations? I, I do because of the circles that I hang out with. Because I mean, I'm on a diversity and equity team, you know, in our union and my school district. So okay, so. I get to hang around woke white folks who will talk with me about race. (laughs) And so I'm more guarded around the white folks who I, I can sense. You can tell if someone wants to talk to you about race or not. You know what I mean? Like there are some white people who can't even say the word black without stuttering. It's like black, black. It's okay to say the word. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, you can tell, you can just tell who you can talk to about race. And so when I, when I, when I sense I can't talk to you about race, then I don't. And if right. I sense that I can, then then I do. But but, um, but I know who those people are. I don't know. You're you're in a different situation where you work. And... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We don't necessarily. Well, you know, more recently, I think people are open to talking about it when we have time to talk about it. Just the other day, we were just all kind of kind of getting tired of charting out at the end of the day and we're just sitting around talking and I, I brought it up some I brought up I brought up how I was proud of you of the the broadcast you did with Pastor Jeff and what you talked we were talking about so we all started talking and 
and and um, um, you know me. For the most part, I've always been mostly the only person of color at work for many years, okay. and then with some exceptions here and there, some smatterings here and there. But over twenty-two is, is years, your your uh, physical uh, occupational occupational therapist, therapist yeah. is that industry mostly all white then um generally it, it, or at it least has, it has been in this uh generation of therapists that are coming up now there's you see some more diversity, more diversity. coming up yeah okay yeah so that, which is good um so but anyway it was kind of like you know and, and one of the white therapists that was in the conversation she was you know, we're talking about things and she's just like, yeah, I just never knew. It's like you're saying, she goes, I've just been lied to, you know, she says, yeah. you know, and I'm just thinking, you know, I've, I've, I would I've, never, I kind of feel that. Yeah. It's like we honest. would never be sitting around in the workplace talking about these things before. I feel like kind of the tide's turning in that sense. Now I'm kind of the old man at work. <laughs> and so a lot of young people are really, uh, taking up, you know, more open-minded, more aware, um, more, um, I guess, ideal, idealistic, I guess. And, and you see a lot of the things that are happening in terms of the protests that are being organized and different things are being our young people. Uh, is there anything that either of you might like to say to our audience before we close here today? Anything specific that we either haven't touched on or that you has come up during the conversation that we didn't go where you wanted to go with or whatever? I, I would just say go go deeper with your friends. I mean, you know, we talked about how we've known you for so long. And, you know, we saw mm -hmm. you at church on Sunday and we were in a small group together for for just, you know, a small portion of that time. But, um, but we didn't hang out otherwise, you know, so... Right. Um, you know, have dinner with people, have people over, go to the park, go walk together. You know, that's where you're going to be getting to know people. Um, have people over to your home, um, go deeper. That's, yeah. that, that's where these conversations come out. They don't come out when yeah. you're necessarily in the lobby after church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so we could all pretend we're having a podcast, invite people over to just talk. Right? <laughs> Yeah, just just take a take a risk. I was proud of Adrena one time because somebody was kind of wanting to get in a Facebook debate, and she said, "No, I'm not going to do that. Why don't you, you and your husband come over to come over to dinner, and we'll talk about it." And it came, and we had a great conversation, and I was like super proud of her. That That's was just, awesome. And then the next time somebody was debating this other lady on Facebook, and I was looking at the comments, and she did what Adrena did she goes no I'm not going to debate you but you know we, why don't we get together and talk about it you know so yeah. so it was kind of it was good so that's that's the way it starts well I, I really thank you guys it was yeah. been fun and thank I've you. enjoyed getting to know you each better and uh, I really appreciate your willingness to come on this podcast and to uh, share with me personally and our audience <laughs> awesome thank you Joe <laughs> thanks, thank you. thanks a lot Joe <laughs> thank you my sincere thanks to friends Chris and Adrena for being our guests today on episode number six. I hope this episode brought some fresh insight that is helpful for your journey. There are two important first steps you can each make in order to become part of the solution that America is crying out for. First, begin educating yourself about systemic racism and what is really going on with these long-standing racial problems. 
To assist you with that effort, you can go to the bottom of our website at myawakeningpodcast.com and check out our resource section. There are resources there that have greatly impacted my journey along the way. Secondly, begin earnestly seeking a true relationship with someone who does not look like you. As challenging as that may sound, I can testify that it will ultimately bring you a fuller understanding of others and great personal joy as well. If hearing Chris and Adrena today was meaningful for your journey, we hope you will consider subscribing and sharing our podcast with your friends. Your input on the My Awakening Podcast Facebook page is appreciated and encouraged. Head to Facebook to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Thank you again for listening. We look forward to sharing more thought-provoking content with you in the next week's episode. Please keep listening, and remember that together we can make the systemic changes that are needed to heal America's racial divide and achieve justice for all. Oh,